The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. I'm Lyndon Kemcaran, part of the Spectator's broadcast team, and each week we choose three pieces from the magazine and ask our writers to read them aloud. Coming up on the podcast this week, Isabel Hardman examines our curious obsession with glucose monitoring gadgets. Paul Wood wonders what exactly did go on between Putin and Prigozhin. And Alexandra Shulman shares the contents of her weekly diary. First up, Isabel Hardman. At £300 a go, the Zoe is a reassuringly expensive accessory. It has a recognisable logo and even had a 200,000 strong waiting list at one point. That wouldn't be so unusual if Zoe was a must-have handbag or jewellery, but it is a continuous glucose monitor that you stick to your arm. Continuous glucose monitors have been available to diabetics for a few years, but now non-diabetics, without any particular reason to worry about their pancreas, are also getting in on the act. Like the fear of gluten a few years ago, glucose levels have gone from something only those with a diagnosed medical condition ever think about, to a widespread obsession. There are many people who now worry that unless they eat a pear with peanut butter, or drink a cup of vinegar before their lunch, they might end up with elevated glucose levels, which could have a range of damaging effects. The vinegar and peanut butter are suggestions, or hacks, from glucose influencer the glucose goddess, Jessie Enchalspe, who promises to help you cut cravings, get your energy back and feel amazing. Glucose monitors are also part of the latest wave of dietary devices and health wearables. Gone are the days when a Fitbit seemed space age. Now you can hack your metabolism with a Lumen device, £250. A breathalyzer for the health addict, which tells you whether you're in fat burn or carb burn through your breath. The Whoop, £27 per month, looks like a watch strap, but acts as a personalised 24-7 fitness and health coach, with biometric tracking to tell you when you are recovering well and when you need to get more sleep. All this monitoring can give interesting results. The Zoe study doesn't just measure participants' blood glucose levels, but also the gut microbiome by asking you to post faecal samples to its team of boffins to tell you which foods work best for you. It promises to leave you healthier and more alert, and if you want, to lose weight. Its tech was adapted by co-founder Professor Tim Spector during the COVID pandemic to help the population track their symptoms. Now Zoe participants can join a large-scale scientific study into how the human body and food interact. They can also find out how they personally respond to all manner of foods, retrain their biology and learn to be healthy for life. In the first few weeks of the programme, they test their gut, blood fat and blood sugar responses before they receive a detailed report. Zoe's glucose monitor has a limited lifespan and is only used for a couple of weeks. The Zoe team insists it is only useful when combined with the data and advice that its full programme offers. 
Similar products, including the Very Method, run three-month cycles with a 14-day tracking period built into each to see how well its members are adapting their lifestyles. The theory behind Very is that our society is in metabolic crisis, also known as obesity. Zoe wants to encourage people to live healthier lives by eating food that's good for their gut microbiome and that doesn't send their glucose levels into orbit. We are only just starting to understand how important the bacteria in our gut can be for so many aspects of our health. I'm as attracted to shiny new health tech kit as middle class dads are to pressure washers, so I find the rise of all this health tech very compelling. Every time I check my watch, it tells me the time and how many steps I've done that day. Why not stick a few more gadgets on my body? Wouldn't a wearable monitor that works out which foods I should be eating help me stay more alert and in a better mood? That promise will probably also sound pretty compelling to any family members or colleagues who've had to deal with me when I'm tired or hungry. But the Zoe testing kit promises even more than that. It's part of a study into what healthy postprandial blood glucose levels actually are. And in this study lies the flaw in all the popular obsession with blood glucose spikes. No one yet knows what healthy looks like for non-diabetics. So beyond theorising that consistently elevated blood sugar can, over a long period of time, put you at risk of heart disease and other illnesses, there is a big leap here. It might be interesting to monitor your blood sugar or metabolism and see how that correlates with grumpy or spectacularly productive days. But it's not necessarily important or useful. Glucose is supposed to increase after eating and, unless you have diabetes, your body is well equipped to handle this through insulin production. For diabetics, this new wider obsession with glucose can be pretty irritating. A friend with type 1 diabetes says she finds the idea that you'd worry about perfectly healthy blood sugar spikes laughable. Glucose monitors aren't yet available to many people in developing countries, meaning diabetics are still having to use outdated methods of monitoring their health. Some charities even ask non-diabetics to donate their wearables once they've finished so that they can be reused by people who actually need them. All this tech helps people feel more in control of their lives and their health. But it also overcomplicates what can be perfectly simple. If you want to lose weight, you need to be in a calorie deficit. And not one so steep that you end up gorging at the end of the diet, which is generally why diets fail, rather than because you are in metabolic crisis. You don't need to shell out hundreds of pounds to know that eating more fruit and vegetables will improve your health. And you definitely don't need a flashy accessory to tell you that your body is, in fact, boringly healthy. That was Isabel Hardman. Next is Paul Wood. In the absence of facts, it's hard to understand what got into Prigozhin. I spoke to the former oligarch, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, about Putin and Prigozhin and their odd relationship. He says that criminality both unites and explains the pair. Prigozhin went to prison for almost 10 years for robbery. The Prigozhin legend is that he opened the first hot dog stand in Leningrad, now St. Petersburg, and then moved on to luxury restaurants. Khodorkovsky says Prigozhin must have remained deeply connected to the underworld to succeed in the restaurant business in the St. Petersburg of the 1990s. And he says Putin was the intermediary between the state security agencies and the city's mafia 
He says, Putin is a bandit. He's a gangster. In the early years, he worked in organizations that were above the law or beyond it, like the KGB. Then he became president and he really started disregarding law completely. The appearance of Prigozhin in this situation is absolutely logical. There's a famous photograph of Prigozhin giving Putin a fussy looking main course. The perfect touch is Putin's expression, a mafia don pout of approval. For Prigozhin to become the Kremlin's caterer, acquiring the absurd nickname Putin's chef was to occupy a position of absolute trust. Russia's leaders have a traditional fear of being poisoned. It allowed him to go on to run the Wagner Group and also the internet troll farm that tried to sway a US presidential election and which still pumps out a slurry of propaganda today. Could it be that the two men cooked up an elaborate hoax at the weekend? That's one of several theories that even while probably mistaken, reveal some truths about Putin's Russia. Rebecca Koffler, a former US intelligence officer who dealt with Russia, told Fox News the mutiny was, quote, a classic false flag operation, classic Putin. The idea, she said, was to get Western governments to go easy on Putin because the alternative to him would be far, far worse. This though is hard to believe with both men left looking so weak, morale in the army at rock bottom, and Ukrainians cheering the sight of Wagner shooting down Russian aircraft. But it might be true that Prigozhin was a kind of licensed critic of the regime, someone to make Putin look good by comparison. Another theory is that Prigozhin thought others would join his coup. That's the view of someone who was a senior figure in one of Russia's most feared mafia groups. Let's call him Lev. Lev is retired and making up for his past by doing good works in his village. He's even become rabbi of the local synagogue where they don't know his history. He suspects that Nikolai Patrushev, one of the most powerful figures in the Kremlin, told Prigozhin to expect help from the FSB, the old KGB, but Patrushev just wanted to get rid of a rival by provoking Prigozhin into doing something rash. No evidence for this has emerged, though Putin must wonder about some of his most senior lieutenants, given how few took sides during the crucial hours of the mutiny. Prigozhin is not a stupid man and must have known how little chance he had of success. Another theory is that he was pushed into a corner by his rivals in the army, and had no choice but to act. The army, backed by Putin, gave Wagner's contractors just a few weeks to resign and join the regular forces, something that might have been the end of Prigozhin. The trouble with this theory is that any deal to preserve Wagner would be worth nothing. Prigozhin and his mercenaries were always just subcontractors for the Kremlin. Their wages could be cut off at a moment's notice. We don't know the terms of the deal between Putin and Prigozhin. Realising he was about to be forced out of the mercenary business, did Prigozhin extort Putin? One more big score before retirement. Prigozhin must know from the Godfather that betrayal normally ends with a garrote, or in this case a dish served with polonium 210. At the weekend, both men seemed to leave themselves no room for anything less than a fight to the finish. 
But if, as Khodorkovsky says, we understand them primarily as criminals, maybe the boss simply bought off his capo. In Putin's Russia, anything is possible. That was Paul Wood. And finally, here's Alexandra Shulman. I've spent every evening of the past week in the midsummer gloaming, making the most of the longest days of the year. London has been on fete. The National Portrait Gallery's long-awaited reopening was occasion for an enormous party, but I found it to be a weirdly disorientating experience. As an ex-trustee for eight years, I thought I knew the place pretty well. I could find my favourite portraits on autopilot, using a mental map of the different galleries. I had even worked with the team there on British Vogue's 100th anniversary exhibition in 2016. But last week it was all change, as the whole place has been reconfigured by architect Jamie Fobert and director Nick Cullinan. They've created more natural light, new spaces and a different perspective on the collection. As I meandered round the beautifully rehung galleries, it was like looking at one's own reflection in a hall of mirrors. Recognisable, but only just. Instead of the previous faintly apologetic main entrance, there's now the splendid Ross Place forecourt. As David Ross, donor and chair of the NPG, stood greeting the crowd of guests, I wondered whether having his name etched in stone, forever part of one of London's most prestigious galleries, would be some compensation for having his nomination rejected on Boris Johnson's resignation honours list. There are many who would consider the Ross Place plaque a far greater glory. The next day, I visited the London Library, where I am a vice president, in search of a copy of The Spectator. This was not because I'm a cheapskate trying to avoid handing over my own cash, but because newspaper vendors are now a rare species in central London. The library housed in St James's Square is part of the ecosystem of gentlemanly clubs, tailors, hedge funds and art galleries in this sector of Mayfair. And that afternoon, as ever, the German street hunch was on fine display. The hunch is demonstrated by a large number of that area's population. Tall, middle-aged men with well-cut suits and neat hair. They stride the pavements, shoulders hunched, and slightly bent over, as if they were battling a strong headwind, which they may well be, given the prevailing prejudice against the pale, male and stale. The annual Victorian Albert summer party is always a lively, gossipy affair. This year's coincided with the opening of the Netta Porte-sponsored exhibition Diva, so there was a higher-than-average fashion quotient among the guests. Unsurprisingly, several people asked me to dish on why my successor Edward Enfall had departed his role as editor-in-chief of British Vogue and whether it was true that he and Anna Winter were at loggerheads. Sorry to disappoint, but I diplomatically replied that I had no idea. This took some doing as I am not naturally known to hold back and it was tempting to seed all manner of delicious rumours. But when I announced I was leaving the magazine six years ago, I was given an executive coaching session by two men in suits. What, they asked, would I say when people asked how I felt about leaving the magazine and about my replacement? I imagined, I replied, I would say that I had loved my time there and was excited 
both to move on and to learn who my successor would be. Anodyne as anything, or so I thought. I was told firmly that I was to say no such thing. I was to say nothing at all, at any time, on the subject. I haven't always listened to these words of advice, but at the V&A party I heard those words ringing in my ears just before I opened my mouth. We've had a couple of our own parties recently, and it's always depressing to see all the empty bottles the next morning. Trying to find a place to recycle 100 bottles and cans is no fun. Couldn't wine merchants such as Majestic offer recycling as part of their service? Accepting the empties would seem a sensible and environmentally helpful solution, just like the village shops of old would do. They could hand us back a penny for our emptied Coronas. In the recent warm weather, we've had the bedroom windows wide open in our London home, and at night the noise is fearsome. Foxes shriek for hours, racing around the street, sparring and rustling in the rubbish bins. Then at about three o'clock, when they retire, the quaintly named birdsong is kicked off by the raucous cawing of crows in the park over the road, before they're joined by the pigeons, blackbirds and tits. I've just arrived in Oxfordshire for a few days' retreat from festivities. I'm unused to the countryside and have been surprised by how quiet it is at night, save the odd moo from a cow. At least, I think it's a cow. That was Alexandra Shulman. And that's everything for this week. If you enjoy these articles, why not pick up a copy of the magazine? I'm Lyndon Kemcaran, and do join us again next week.